give us more of a, a hunger for you, a hunger that only you can satisfy, um, and that though satisfying, it keeps us coming back for more. Lord, we want you to be Lord of every aspect of our lives. We want everything we do to bring honor to you. Though we know it's a constant struggle uh, to battle the, the thoughts and deeds of the flesh, we know that you have equipped us with everything we need uh, for victory. And we appreciate, Lord, that, that you have given us your spirit, that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross in our place, a penalty we deserved, that we could be made right with you, that we could experience eternal life and fellowship with you, Lord, to be called your sons. And as sons, Lord, we approach your throne of grace this morning, asking you to give us obedient hearts, to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and minds that understand, and that we could rejoice as your truth goes forward, and to anticipate the work that it will do in making us more like your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are going to continue our series on marriage this morning, kind of, I would say significantly, but not altogether, switch topics this morning. And it occurred to me as I was doing my study this week that we've only covered really a couple of, uh, a couple of categories when it comes to marriage. I think there's been over a dozen sermons at this point, and yet all we've really covered thus far are... Um, what is marriage, right? We've defined marriage. We've talked about marriage and dominion. We've talked about the roles, the various functions of, of the man and his wife. And then we've talked about sex. We've talked about intimacy. And that's really all we've covered so far. So hopefully the, uh, the depth is well received and we will uh, now move on from intimacy to the most dire of topics. So much is riding on this and that is communication. Communication. Um, one of the things that I learned in college as a, a communication major at one point, after switching my major several times, was that uh, communication requires two things. A sender, the actual message, and then a receiver. That is, according to my professor at the time, was the most simplistic way to understand what is communication. And though simple, it is extremely important, especially in the marriage relationship. Marriages, strong marriages, are built on strong communication. In fact, when you look at statistics, one of the most frequently cited reasons for a marriage relationship falling apart and leading to divorce is a breakdown in communication. The main one is money, of course, finances. One is marital infidelity and near the top of that list is also a breakdown in communication. Man and his wife get married, and then at some point, they just stop talking to each other. They just stop having meaningful conversations. And of course, if you're not talking to one another, it's very hard to gauge what one another's needs are, what the other is going through. And of course, you run into a variety of problems that can be so overwhelming. Often, a husband and wife come to the conclusion that our, our marriage has so many problems, why even try? Why just not scrap it and maybe at some point start over with another person? And I'm here to tell you today, that's a bad idea. That's a terrible idea. Start communicating again and start communicating God's way. Very big issue. 
People don't know how to talk anymore. I mean, if you want a good exercise in people watching, like go to Texas Roadhouse or, or Red Robin and just look at the other tables. And what do they do? You get two people, friends or a couple, and they sit down and they take this instrument of witchcraft and technology out and they face each other nearly the whole time and they're staring at their phones. And you think... Man, aren't they? And then, and then, of course, you're at your table and you're like, hey, babe, see that couple over there? They're on their phones. Why don't they just have a meaningful conversation? And so something as simple as that can distract from this very important, this very important issue in marriage is communication. It's not just merely talking, although sometimes that helps, but I'm talking about like actual substantive, meaningful conversation that results in Christ-like growth. So there is a point to it. There are some times where you can just talk to one another. You can what we call shoot the breeze, having conversations that maybe on the surface seem meaningless, but really the fact that you are talking is meaningful. And so we're going to get into that, and I really don't know how many Sundays we're going to spend in this, but we're going to talk about communication, um, but also communication from the sense of uh, conflict resolution, because as, as much as it is to have a conversation with each other, conversation is inevitably going to, to, to lead to disagreement at some point, and disagreement is going to lead to conflict. And now we've got to figure out how to resolve that conflict. It's inevitable, right? Those trials in marriage will come. And so this, the goal of this section is to actually cover quite a bit, because I want you guys talking to one another, but I want you to talk to one another with a particular purpose in mind. And I want that talking to one another to be a joyous occasion, more than just a chore, more than just this purposeless duty, but something that you actually do regularly and that you do well. And so we have to relearn the art of communication from a biblical worldview. And I think, you know, we would we'd say marriage is, is the most fundamental of human relationships, but think of how this will apply in all of your relationships. Communication is important in every societal context. Everywhere you go, you're going to have to talk to one another. And of course, we recognize that one of the challenges is that we are, America especially, is becoming an increasingly touchy society. It is often said that you can't really say anything to anyone anymore, because people are so easily offended. I mean, my wife can confirm, when we were first married, I was that touchy individual. One of the things she would say to me is, I can't say anything to you. I mean, she doesn't say that to me anymore, so hopefully I've actually grown and she's not just being, being nice. But uh, that was a major problem early on in our marriage, and so this is something that uh, to me is urgent uh, in particular is good communication and being able to receive communication well with a humble and teachable heart, and we'll get more into that at a later time. But we want to return to a biblical foundation of what undergirds communication, uh, not only to the Christian, but also within the Christian marriage. And there's no escaping it. God invented something called words. God speaks. God communicates. One of the first things that first things that God does in Scripture is speak. You open your Bibles to the book of Genesis 1, what do we read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, how did He create? Did He just 
move his hands around and sort of abracadabra without actually saying it? No, it says, and then God said, let there be light. And what do you know? There was light. And so God speaks. God speaks to his creation. And then it was. So communication, the spoken word, is fundamental to the very fabric of creation. In fact, we are told that even the Lord Jesus holds all of creation together by the word of his power. This this word of power is so profound that if he were to withdraw it, all of creation, including us, would disintegrate. It would cease to be. So yes, words have a particular authority. Words have a particular gravitas and purpose to them. And it's no different, I would say it's especially that, in the life of God, in His creative work, in His saving work. There's no getting out of communication, and so we have to operate within God's framework. You've you've heard it here many many times. We operate in a God-rigged world. We have to play by God's rules, and to deviate from the way He has organized and directed His creation is to go against its Creator. And so what does God have to say about communication? Some more on this. The fact is you have to talk. Maybe that was something you really worried about, men, maybe when you first met your uh, wife-to-be. You you scheduled that first date at the the local taco shop, and you're like, man, what am I going to say to this girl? I hope I sound interesting. I hope I don't say something stupid. But you assumed going into that conversation that you were going to be expected to say something. Maybe she didn't have a whole lot of trouble talking, but you did. You had to say something. And then getting married, finally winning her over to your point of view and marrying you did, <laughs> did not at all uh, grant you freedom from being able to talk and being able to lead. You have to talk. You probably have to talk more often than you desire. But you have to communicate with your spouse. This key to a, a strong Christ-honoring marriage. You communicate to greet. Good morning. Good morning, woman. Good morning, husband. You have to communicate in order to plan. I, in particular, are, am married to a planner. My wife loves to plan things. She loves the calendar. And I, I have come to realize that the calendar is a glorious thing. Life has to be organized to some degree. You've got to communicate to plans. So your plans are on the same page. Remember, there's not just one of you. Now there's two of you, and you are one flesh. So you have to communicate to plan. You have to communicate to teach, to disciple, to lead. You have to, you have to communicate to submit. Fulfilling your roles as man and wife require communication, usually verbally. You have to communicate to encourage one another. Life isn't always going to go your way. You're going to have certain issues in life that are from the enemy to discourage you, to cause you to doubt the sufficiency and provision of God. And you're going to have to speak to one another to encourage one another. As Hebrews 13, 3.13 says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There's a call to encourage. There's a call to encourage promptly. Now, in many cases, yes, there needs to be a delay in talking. We are to be slow to speak, as we heard this morning. But many times we have to be wise so that we know what to say, so that we have to know how to respond 
when the various issues of life tempt us to doubt and unbelief. Further, we have, to speak, we have to speak and communicate in order to resolve conflict. Talked about that. There's going to be conflict. How do you resolve it? Well, it was probably talking that got you into trouble in the first place, and now you have to talk in order to resolve the trouble. You have to communicate to express desire. The fact that both of you got married at some point didn't mitigate your desires. In fact, your, your desires probably increased in number and frequency and intensity. How can you express those desires without being able to communicate? Well, the answer is you can't. And so when all these things put together, they point to a very important dynamic of communication, and that is, of course, communication as fellowship. Communication is a way that you fellowship, that you enjoy a common life together with your spouse. So see it as an opportunity to bring joy and life and vibrancy to your relationship. Communicate. One man says this, speaking of communication as fellowship, it's an expression of both love and humility. It springs from a desire to bring benefits to others coupled with a sense of personal weakness and need. Now listen to this. It has a double motive, the wish to help and to be helped. It has a double aim, to do and to receive good. It is a corporate seeking by Christian people to know God better through sharing with each other what individually they have learned from Him already. I mean, that's one of the great things about marriage, I think, that needs to be learned early on, is asking the question, hey, what is the Lord doing in your life? What is the Lord teaching you? You thought he taught you things before you got married as a single person. Wait until you get married. He will teach you many, many things. He will open your eyes to things you had no clue were going on in your life. And he's going to use your spouse to do it. But see that communication as a tie that binds, that strengthens the fellowship you have as man and wife together. And just some things to keep in mind for later before we actually get into our text this morning is, and we'll expand on these later, but they bring a a particular dynamic and even challenge to communication because although it may sound simple, communication has certain levels and most of you, if not all of you, have heard me explain this before, but just for posterity so we have it as part of this uh, series and teaching, there are three particular levels of communication that I think we need to be aware of when we communicate with one another, especially when it comes to conflict resolution, because when we cross, if any, either of these wires get crossed, it can prevent us from being able to pursue a favorable outcome together. So here's the first level of communication. We call this substance. It's three S's. Substance. That is simply referring to what is said, the content of what you are speaking to one another. It also refers to the truthfulness of something. Is what you are saying true? Is it based in fact? Right. And for believers, we would ask, we would ask the follow-up question, in substance, is what we are saying consistent with God's revealed word? Is its foundation biblical truth? That's the substance. What is said? Style, that's the second S. And of course, that is how something is said. Something can be said softly. Something can be said tersely. Something can be said loudly. It can be said quietly. It can be said passively, dismissively. 
sarcastically. Any other kind of adverb you want to add to this? That's, such, is the, such is the beauty and dynamic of the spoken word, of human speech. There's many different ways to express something. And that often is the level that gets us into trouble. We may say something that is perfectly true, that is perfectly accurate, and we desire to express that accuracy to our spouse. And yet, what's the issue that is taken? You know, I really don't like the way you said that. Honey, the house is on fire! (laughs) We gotta flee! You know, sweetheart, the way you said that, so aggressive. So, so, so curt. You know, why, why, you're upsetting the children. But, but the house is on fire. It's hard to be calm when the house is going up in flames. It's also hard to be calm if your marriage is going up in flames. And good communication will prevent that. Here's the other thing. And this may be the most important thing. Is the spirit. So you have substance, style, spirit. What is said, how you say it, and then of course, why you say it. And one of the complexities that the spirit of human speech adds is the potential for accusation. One of the most dangerous threats to a marriage is assuming motive. I heard actually one pastor say that assuming motive is more dangerous to a marriage than a pornographic addiction. Because we're constantly assigning blame. We're constantly assuming the worst. See, the thing with the spirit of speech is that it actually, it's not something you can see. You can see style. You can listen to substance. You can accurately assess those things with a little bit of research. But when it comes to the spirit of the motivation of why something is said, unfortunately, even within the marital union, an accusation of, a, of, a, of an ungodly motivation can often prevent you from listening to your spouse. Assuming motive, especially assuming an ungodly motive, can shut down lines of communication, even though what the person may be saying on the sending end is perfectly true and said with gentleness and with love. But because the motives are second-guessed, doubt is cast on whether or not what is said is for the good of someone else or even for the good of both parties. And so we operate within that constant dynamic of human language, that constant framework. Those are the the three dimensions of of human communication. And if you cross those lines, communication can be a very difficult thing. And so as we move on, we'll explain um, the importance of how these three things uh, play a role in speech and play a role in conflict resolution. See, when we talk about uh, assuming motive in the media, we call this spin. You know, Fox News is going to say something different from CNN, right? They, 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 may, they may report the same event, but they put a spin on it in which they definitely and undeniably apply a particular motive to what is being said or what is being done. And so in marriage, we have to guard our hearts against spin. And I think on the face of it, one of the most important things we can do is, one, substance. We listen to what is being said, and we ask about the truth of it. Is what is being said true? If it is true, then be receptive to it 
even if the person speaking that word is a hypocrite, even if they struggle to live up to that standard themselves, if what they are saying is consistent with God's word, then listen to it. Style. You may not like how something is said. Even if it is said gently, you may still not like how it is said because the truth is what they are saying is it stings. You don't like what they're saying. You don't like that what they're saying is exposing certain actions or certain attitudes or thoughts. And of course, spirit, and you've heard me say this many times, assume the best about the person, especially your spouse. Even if, even if they're grumpy or they say it in an unkind way, assume that they have your good in mind. Once again, more on that later. But those are the three levels or three dimensions of communication. So, the text that I want to talk, talk through today is from the book of Colossians. And if you look on sermonaudio.com, yes, I did preach from this text in late September of 2022. But to get us all caught up, I think it's worth taking a look at this passage again because it provides a baseline for how Christians and, of course, how married couples communicate with one another. And so I think it'll be helpful today before we go into greater detail on speech and on communication within marriage, we once again get get the uh, proper foundations and proper starting points when it comes to this. So Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, and of course in this context from chapter 3 on, Paul is describing the characteristics of of a person who is living the resurrected or risen life. This is a person who has the life of God inside of him, who has been transformed. He is drawing a sharp distinction between the way a risen man conducts himself and the way a dead man conducts himself. And of course, this includes speech. So going to verse 5. He says this, Colossians 4, 5, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be seasoned with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now note the context here, very important. The context is speaking with grace. Your language always being with grace. Toward whom? Outsiders. Now, for some of you, this is a perfect situation because you may think, oh, my wife treats me like an outsider. I'm a stranger in my own home. What am I going to do? Maybe you treat your wife like an outsider. Maybe you're just at each other's throat. Well, here is the day of salvation, friends. Here's where we recapture communication God's way. So here we go. That is to say, how much more? How much more should our speech be seasoned with grace? within a Christian marriage, right? How much more should grace be present and should grace be applied? So he says, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. So part of conducting ourselves with wisdom and making the most of opportunity is found in the way we speak. And what does he say? May your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And many of us can relate to this. 
Especially with outsiders. You, you had this encounter with an unbeliever, and you got tongue-tied. You had no idea what to say. And sometimes that situation is reflected in your marriage. Got in a tiff with the missus the other day, and I had no idea what to say. She asked me how my day went, and I looked at her like a deer in the headlights. I had no idea what to say. See, whether it's conflict or the daily occurrences of life, right? Paul gives us a very important instruction here. May your speech always be with grace. Very, very basic. One of the most basic instructions we have in all of Scripture on the way we talk. And that, is, that answers the question, what is the language or what is the dialect of the Christian? It is the language of grace. Connected intimately with this putting on of the new man that Paul instructs us in chapter 3. Put on the new man, right? Paul instructs us elsewhere, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And you would be shocked at how language can be a provision for the flesh. And now he's saying, no, don't do that. Make it an occasion for grace. May the substance of it be gracious. May the spirit of it be gracious. May the style of it be gracious. In fact, the way you talk is going to be evidence of the transformation that is occurring in you from the inside out. It is evidence of the presence of God's Spirit at work. And so in all your ways, in all your life, may grace be present. May grace dominate. Especially, especially the way you talk. We were just warned from our reading from the book of James, the tongue, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Think about it, it's restless. It's tossing and turning, thinking about what it can say. Right. Full of deadly poison. When Paul quotes from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 3, he talks about unbelieving speech, that their throat is an open grave. The poison of snakes or asps is on their lips. That when we are in an ungodly frame of mind, we are operating in a fleshly manner. Boy, the tongue is ready to be weaponized. The tongue is ready to be an agent for destruction and tearing one another down. And it is much harder to build up what has been torn down. It's easy to tear someone down with a single word, a single cutting, unkind, thoughtless phrase. So much easier, so much more efficient to do that than to build up and edify and encourage and strengthen. So we must take heed at the words of the Apostle concerning how we speak. And this is not limited to the way we present the Gospel, but in everything we say in all of our conversation, grace dominates. Grace is on the front lines. Listen to the uh, words of Solomon from Ecclesiastes 10.12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. So isn't this interesting? Paul is making the same connection between wisdom and grace that Solomon is. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious while the lips of a fool consume him. I mean, isn't that imagery for you? The lips of a fool consume him. That is, our words are to be full of the compassion, kindness, patience, love, and forgiveness that has transformed you in Christ. And that is to find a welcome place 
in your marriage union. And to apply it more broadly, it is to say what is wholesome, to say what is spiritually whole and mature, to say what is sensitive, fitting, kind, purposeful, gentle, truthful, loving, and thoughtful. You realize this takes a lot of wisdom. There's a reason that speech is not vanilla. We don't always say the same thing the same way to all different kinds of people. There is something about speech when it is wise that it is used in a strategic fashion so as to make grace known. And so what is, what is it that Paul uses to capture our idea of grace? And he says, as though seasoned with salt. So we have to see salt as an illustration for how grace performs in communication. I believe that is Paul's point for us this morning. And of course, salt like grace, performs a variety of tasks. And it's really hard to pinpoint, actually, uh, what Paul is doing here specifically. If he wants us to think of the variety of uses of salt, or if he's thinking of one particular use, I tend to favor just salt and its completeness. What does salt do? What, what, what are its uses? I mean, we are warned by Jesus himself that the salt loses its flavor, right? It's useless, it's only, the only thing that it is used for is to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot by men. So we understand here the clear necessity, the clear uh, importance of, of our speech not losing that saltiness, of our speech not losing its grace. Think about speech without grace. We should speak of speech with grace in the same way that we think of a steak with salt and many other things. But don't let your speech be without grace. Let it be full of grace. So here's the first thing I want to say regarding the saltiness of gracious speech. And I want to explain what salty is not. First of all, it's this. Gracious speech is salty, not sweet. That doesn't mean you never speak sweetly to each other. Understand the context. What I mean by this is that gracious speech does not sugarcoat things. It does not sugarcoat things, meaning that it does not obscure the truth. Grace is inherently truthful. Grace exposes the truth. Otherwise, grace is not grace. Grace is concerned intimately with making reality known, with making the truth proclaimed. It is a benefit to hear the truth. It does not obscure what really is. It is not flatter. You know, when you sugarcoat things, when you flatter, what are you doing? You're, you're sucking up, right? You're trying to curry favor without truth. And that's one of the, it's one of the crosses to bear for the Christian. We speak the truth. We speak it in love. We speak it in grace, but we still speak the truth. And often, that does not curry favor. It curries disfavor. It makes a lot of people not like us. In, fa- in fact, it makes a lot of people wish we would shut up and stop talking. Maybe your spouse feels that way about you. But what does sugarcoating betray? It it betrays, above all, a fear of man. When you're sugarcoating something, you are trying to sweeten something that is not inherently sweet. You are trying to change the flavor and substance of it. So in doing so, you change the message completely. That is deception, pure and simple. A man who sugarcoats things is a man who is nice. 
And we've talked about the dangers and pitfalls of the nice man. See sermon number four or five or something. But listen to this attitude explained in Isaiah chapter 30, starting in verse 9. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. And say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words or smooth words. Prophesy illusions. Right there you have obscurity, non-reality. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. See, when you talk about God's holiness, when you proclaim God's holiness, it, is, it may be sweet to us. Right? We love, I would hope, as Christians to hear about the holiness of God. The fact that He is devoted to His people, devoted to His own glory and desires to dwell among us. There is something particularly sweet and comforting about that. But when you are proclaiming that to a group of rebellious sinners, they just say, say no more. Don't talk about this holiness thing. Talk about God, but talk about how, how much He loves us. Right? Only talk about God's love. Only talk about God's kindness. But don't talk about His judgment. Don't talk about the fact that God is a consuming fire. See, that's sugarcoating. That's cowardice. That's fear of man. And that is, I think most profoundly, that is a misrepresentation of who God is. And you're going to find times in your marriage where one of you or both of you is simply not going to want to hear it. They're going to want to hear smooth words. They're not going to want to hear the truth. And so, men, it's up to you in these, at, at these uh, crossroads in your marriage to man up, to be a leader, and to start speaking truth. And don't fear your wife. Fear the Lord and lead your wife. Gracious speech is salty, not sweet. Gracious speech is also salty, not spicy. What does that mean? Spicy speech is simply speaking, usually on purpose, sometimes in ignorance, to incite anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And I realize that sometimes spicy speech can, 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 ins- can, can motivate people, right? Keeps them from feeling sorry for themselves. And that in, in itself, yeah, can be a gracious act. But when it's spicy in the sense of you're just, you're just, you're not, you're not saying anything to inspire holiness or righteousness, but only to incite anger, to only stir up anxiety and rage, well, that's not gracious. Gracious speech is salty. I kind of add this to, your, uh, to the sermon title, but I thought of a, another one. Gracious speech is salty, not sour. Right. What do I mean by sour? You know, think about, oh, it really soured the moment. Everything was going along fine, and then he or she said this, and it just really soured the conversation. Here's what I mean by that. It's gracious speech is not constantly blowing people out. Sometimes we do that unintentionally, but it does not go into a conversation seeking to just blow people out, seeking only to get its point across, which then, of course, shuts down the conversation. It doesn't behave that way. Gracious speech nurtures a continuance, a preservation of conversation. It it conducts itself wisely so as to keep lines of communication open, right? It's strategic, I've told some of you about this. There's this gentleman, we'll call him Nelson because that's his real name. He's called me a few times in the last, last couple, of, couple of years. I thought this is a great illustration for this. You know, uh, the, of that gracious speech is not sour. But this, this dude 
keeps calling me. And he, the first time he called me was a couple years ago, and he asked me what my thoughts were on John 17. He didn't ask us about the church. He just wanted to speak to a pastor of the Mouse Baptist Church. Not a Mouse, just the Mouse, the Mouse, the Mouse Baptist Church. And so I said, well, this is, this is Jonathan. What can I help you with? You know, and he asked me about John chapter 17 and my take on it. You know, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one and only true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay. And of course, his point, which I later found out, was that Jehovah's Witnesses use this scripture to deny the deity of Christ. Because if Jesus is speaking to his father and he is the one and only true God, that means Jesus must not be God. So why do you guys, why do you heretics believe in the Trinity? That's the question, leading the witness, right? But I found out that every time I tried to respond, he would interrupt me mid-sentence. I have had three, I want to call them conversations because they're versations, but he has called me three times in the last two years, and I have not once successfully completed a sentence. If I tried to quote John eleven thirty five 35 and tell him that at one point in history, Jesus wept, I would not be able to finish that conversation. Because the conversation is so sour and spicy, it cannot continue. Because one is constantly interrupting the other. One is constantly preventing the other from expressing a particular thought or point. And you can see, I think some of you, maybe more, <laughs> more, more quickly than others, how that plays a role in the breakdown of communication in your marriage. It's because you're using sour and spicy conversation. You're not speaking graciously to one another. You are not speaking in a salty manner to one another. And so you can't even have a conversation with one another. You're impossible to talk to. Maybe you've heard that and maybe you've said that. But it's gotten to that point. But this is, this is the word of God identifying this. Identifying foolish, ungodly communication. And all I can say is stop doing that. Stop talking to one another like that. On the wife's end, that is unsubmissive speech. On the husband's end, that is unloving speech. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands who love you. So that is what salt is not. That is what salty speech is not. That is what gracious speech is not. So let's go into what gracious speech entails. Firstly, salt is a preservative. That was probably its most common use back then. Salt is a preservative. You wanted to use salt. You didn't want to work in a salt mine. But salt preserved things. They didn't have refrigeration back then. They, did not, they were not able to harness the power of Freon and electricity. So, if you wanted to have that delicious steak dinner we've been talking about, what you would do is you would put it on meat, and the meat would then not rot. It would preserve it. And like so, conversation seasoned with salt, gracious conversation, can prevent, and I say does prevent, the relationship from deteriorating. It prevents corruption. Gracious speech keeps corrupting speech at bay. Right? In the same way as, again, walking according to the Spirit, what, is, what does Paul say in Galatians? If you walk according to the Spirit, what will you not do? You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so if your speech is seasoned with salt, if it is godly speech, if it is gracious speech, See, your, your, your speech will be way too full of grace, way too saturated with grace for there to be room for corrupting speech and therefore room for corrupting influences. And so this keeps communication and thus the relationship intact. And just as 
The Spirit of God keeps us, preserves us, and keeps us from falling away. So does gracious speech preserve our relationship with our spouse. Keeps us from stumbling in a variety of ways. Keeps in mind the, in, the place of the encouragement of the truth of the gospel. We are able, with gracious speech, to constantly comfort and encourage one another with our position in Christ and the preeminence of His grace in our lives and in our marriages. That's an example of what it is to preserve with speech. We are reminded of the passage from Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Take that hope of preservation unto eternal life and put it in your marriage. Put it in your speech. It will keep the rot at bay. Words of grace keep the rot of sin at bay and raises a guard against unbelief. See, nothing brings rot into a relationship like a word spoken without grace. Like a word spoken meant to tear down and wound the person. A word spoken that is, that is petty and thoughtless. Meant to be cruel. You know, to words that treat your spouse like they're just a hopeless situation, really beyond the reach of grace. It preserves. Secondly, salt stings. You've heard the phrase, salt in the wound. Salt stings. And I think the primary application here is very, is very easy. Words of grace are truthful. If you, and we've talked about this a lot already. If, you are, if there is grace in your speech, there is truth in your speech. And there is a certain intent behind that, right? You don't just speak the truth simply for truth's sake. There is a purpose behind speaking the truth. What does salt do to a wound? Yes, it stings, but it also cleanses. It keeps the wound from becoming infected. And if you keep infection at bay then you keep rot away. You keep your marriage from becoming gangrenous and smelling like almonds. But think of what this looks like in marriage. What a word of grace reminds you of, what it reinforces, and men, this is especially true for you, is that you must be willing to correct each other. We've already talked about this as one of the most difficult things in marriage is the willingness to correct one another because correction means that you are exposing error. You are telling one another when they screw up. That is hard to, that is hard to say, but it is even harder to receive. Because on the giving end, you're wondering how your spouse is going to receive this, how they're going to take it, what they're going to think of you. And then, of course, on the receiving end, you may be tempted to think that, oh, you, your spouse hates you and thinks you're a miserable failure of a person, and that there's no hope for you. Once again, assuming intent, assuming motive, which you should not do. But what does gracious speech do? There is a healing factor to it. There is a cleansing factor, right? You cannot attend to an injury that you don't know you have, right? It's one of the most, that's one of the more difficult things about dealing with catastrophic injury. You take a fall, you know, you're hiking around um, Garden of the Gods or something, you, you take a fall, and you're sitting there and you know, your, your nervous system's kicked in. You can't feel anything. You can't feel your leg. And someone comes by and says, hey, what's your, why is your femur sticking out like that? Right? You can't feel it. 
You don't know that this is killing you. You don't know the, the catastrophic injury that has come upon you. And yet it takes someone to come by and observe that you have injured yourself. And in life, it's usually your spouse. And they said to say something so absurd. Your femur's sticking out of your leg. It's broken. And if I don't get you help, you might die because you're bleeding out. Well, you're crazy. I can't feel a thing. That's the problem. <laughs> you don't know what's happening. You, you can't feel a thing. But another person, uh, the Lord brings along into your life to observe those things. And yes, admittedly, salt on a massive femur injury would be very painful. But once again, keeps the rot at bay. It exposes right? It exposes and cleans. And sometimes in this, in, in marriage, the worst that it's going to, the worst that grace is going to do is wound your pride, right? And boy, do all of us need to have our pride wounded. In fact, our pride just needs to be gutted and put down like a rabid animal so that humility can take its place. It wounds your pride, correction does, but the truth applied has a power to cleanse and heal if received. Words hurt, you're going to act hurt, you may even be angry by what your spouse said. But if you notice, a few days later, you didn't die. What they said only killed you metaphorically. That's the encouragement that we have even from Proverbs when it comes to disciplining your child, right? It's almost like you use the rod on your child, relax, it's not going to die. <laughs> and then we, then we read later on from Hebrews 12, 11, that discipline, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the, peace, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And you know what we call that? Sanctification. Words of grace have a sanctifying effect to them. And that is why we say, as we often do, Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. See, sweet. And so we have to have an open heart for that, for that correction. It may hurt, but it has a sanctifying effect. You'll be glad that your spouse pointed that out to you. And you may never know what could have happened if they hadn't said anything. Thirdly, salt is a flavor enhancer. It's a seasoning. It makes the bland flavorful. Now, certain foods can't be helped. If you ever tried British food or, or Danish food, can't be helped. It's bland regardless. But I think what we can draw from this partnered with sanctification is that gracious words are used to build up, right? And there's a sense in which, again, not that you're being disingenuous, but when you talk to someone, when you are, being, when, when you are using words of grace, there should be a certain charm and winsomeness and goodness about the way you talk, you don't want people fleeing at your sight all the time. And yes, there are, we have to understand too, there's an important qualification here, especially if you are married to an unbeliever. They may completely hate what you say. They hate the Jesus you talk about. They hate the church you attend. Right? And they choose to believe the worst thing about you. It happens. But by and large, there should be something attractive in the way you talk. And that should be so, especially in light of the fact that you could review a long list of the destructive power of unbelieving speech and how it breaks down. 
But grace-filled speech is flavorful. Right? It builds up. It's wholesome. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Right? Going back to that passage. But only such a word as is good for edification. And here it is, according to the need of the moment. That's why we say speech isn't vanilla. You're not always going to say the same thing at the same time in the same way to the same person. So that requires wisdom. What is the need of the moment? What can I say and how can I say it? So as to draw your spouse in. Remember, this is, especially men, this is your, your wife is your first ministry, right? Don't mess it up with the word spoken in haste or said thoughtlessly. Remember, we, earlier on in our series, we said one of your responsibilities is to woo your wife, to draw her in, to pursue her. How are you going to do that standing still with nothing to say? I mean, she's getting away from you, bro. Go after her. That requires wisdom. It requires winsomeness. It requires thinking about what you're saying. Again, there's a reason our speech is seasoned with salt, with grace, not vinegar, not cayenne pepper. That we don't say things that lead to discouragement and perplexity even though we recognize that some people will feel that way regardless, but that is not our point. That is not our purpose. Our words should be gracious so that they satisfy the soul, so that they are able to draw a person back into the kindness of God and unity in the spirit of marriage and strengthening that bond of peace. Here's the fourth one, and I think this links well with the one just spoken, is that words of grace are kind, right? And this speaks to the Greek understanding is that salt was a term used to describe wit and wisdom of someone who was well-spoken and someone who was able to say the right thing at the right time so as to win over hearers. Okay. But the kindness of gracious speech means that it is through your words that you communicate a willingness to meet the need of your spouse. Right. Kindness is not just being nice. Kindness is meeting a need. It's an expression of love that comes to the aid of those that God has charged to your spiritual care. To break this down a bit, it is that your speech portrays the grace of God at work within you. So that what you're saying isn't simply just words. It's hard to listen to a hypocrite. Sometimes impossible. But words of grace showing kindness portray that grace of God. It is a grace without hypocrisy. And of course, you want your spouse to see that at work in you. Listen to Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. It also means the wit and wisdom to know when not to speak. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So we desire our speech to be sacrificed or, or saturated, to be permeated with grace, always bound by a Christ-like concern for your husband or for your wife. And so, in closing, we see this, we see Paul say this, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That returns to sort of the question at the beginning. What do I say? What do I say to this person? 
especially when they're discouraged. And here's the thing is that grace, I think this is what this means, is that so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul is telling us the answer. How should I respond? Graciously, right? It's how you always respond. Graciously. Are you in the dark about how to talk to someone? Speak to them with grace. That is, speak to them always with their highest good in mind. Remember, what is grace? God's unmerited, undeserved, and unreturnable love and favor toward undeserving souls, right? Toward us. And so when we speak, we are always seeking that benefit for the other person. And if you're seeking that for your spouse, I guarantee you that both of you will benefit. Grace is contagious. Grace never simply, grace is never content to remain isolated. It always seeks to grow and proliferate the lives of of those it impacts. And so if you have the mind of grace to speak to someone, it will be very hard to be in the dark or clueless about how to answer people. Once again, if you want to know how to answer an outsider, how much more should you be wise to answer an insider, to have something to say to that most important person in your life? And it'll never be a mystery because the answer is grace. And it'll prevent you from being harsh, vindictive, selfish, only thinking about what benefits you, only getting your thoughts out, only expressing your perspective. See, if that's your mindset, that's a graceless mindset and you'll always have an issue of what to say. And grace takes the mystery out of how to respond. Even though, it may be, it, even though it may sound harsh sometimes, it always seeks to reveal the good and it always seeks to confer the good and to reveal what is true and what is right. So that is grace in our speech. And that is our baseline. And that is our clear starting point with how to relate to one another as man and wife. And so as we go forward um, in communication, we will explore what that looks like in greater specificity. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and faithfulness to us. Um, We thank you for your word and its clarity. We thank you, God, that we are not, we don't have to be clueless. We don't have to be in the dark about how to speak to and relate to one another. And, you know, we recognize the the gravity and, and, and importance of this subject. Sometimes, I mean, most of us can relate to uh, times frequently in our own marriage and even relationships where we just don't know what to say. And, and while, yes, sometimes it's good not to say anything, eventually we are called to speak up. We are called to edify. We are called to build up. We are called to expose truth. We are called to be ministers of the gospel of grace within our most intimate relationships. Those that you have united us with in one flesh. And Lord, as you speak words of grace and words of kindness and hope to us, may we turn around and, and express that same Christ-like character to be ministers of grace to our spouses. Pray for the, the men in this room as we are sometimes prone to silence and, and, and caveman-style grunting, that we would uh, be thoughtful and wise to use our words to build up our wives and to strengthen that relationship that our priority would always be grace to be 
an expression of the kindness that you show us daily to preserve and to build up, to enhance uh, that relationship, Lord, that we could reap all the joyous benefits of it, that you may be glorified, that we may truly, uh, that our marriages would truly express uh, this love that you have for us by sending your Son to redeem us. And all these things, God, we commit them to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.